Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the authentically young, paradoxically hip, and vocationally lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. I keep myself in the dark about what the uh, adverbs are going to be, so I'm like just pleasantly oh. surprised every time they get read. <laughs> uh, what are we drinking this week, Zach? We are drinking uh, a wine from uh, Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it, which was brought to us by uh, our first in-guest Patreon I know. supporter. VIP Creed Cal- Caldwell is mm-hmm. the first one to actually come to a recording, and so yeah. we're and super he's, grateful. And he has brought us a... Wallersheim uh, Winery, their Prairie Fume. Yeah. Wow. So we told him we would provide the drinks. But, I know. But, I, but we're we also, won't say no. We're no, also we not say no. ones to say no to <laughs> nope, drinks no. when they're and brought the to us. And the wine is fantastic. Yeah. No. Olga's very excited. I'm yeah. very excited. One, I'm excited because I love white wine. Two, I'm excited because I was with Creed in the Holy Land and I haven't seen him Aww. since then. So Good it's a little reunion. Mm-hmm. A little reunion. Exciting. All right. Well, cheers. Well, yeah. cheers. And cheers. Thank you, Creed. you the best. All right. Who are we talking to this week, Olga? Um, so today joining us on Skype is Ross Douthit. He is an op-ed columnist at the New York Times. So he writes on religion, politics, and culture. And most recently, he is the author of To Change the Church, Pope Francis, and the Future of Catholicism. So the interview gets sort of in the weeds a little bit, but Ross's book focuses on uh, Amoris Laetitia, which was the encyclical written by Pope Francis on family and marriage, uh, specifically centering in on one teaching about whether or not uh, Catholics who have been divorced and get remarried... Uh, whether or not they can receive communion. Uh, without an annulment. Without an annulment. Right. And so uh, Amoris Laetitia, in a footnote, suggests that with uh, pastoral discernment, uh, some internal forum, that there some might penance. be a window for that, some penance. Um, and Ross thinks that is a big problem, and it extends to much larger issues relating to the church and how it relates to the modern world. Yeah. Like, that's one small step in, like, basically conceding to the modern world, which in which... Other the, religions have already done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we're gonna, we talked to him we're about gonna, that, yeah. and it's a, it's a good combo. Uh, but first, this episode of Jesuitical is sponsored by the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, also known as JVC. JVC places passionate young leaders, ages 21 to 35, in vital service among marginalized communities. During their year, volunteers live in intentional communities and participate in year-long Ignatian formation program. So JVC is currently taking applications for incredible placements throughout the country like Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles and the International Rescue Committee in Atlanta. Apply online at jesuitvolunteers.org slash apply. Moving on to Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, first, so two weeks ago, we brought you a uh, Purity ponchos, modest. What were they? Modesty, Modesty ponchos. Modesty ponchos. <laughs> they should have been called beauty um, ponchos. And now we have some even more outrageous prom news. Um, a Catholic school in Florida uh, had a caged tiger at its prom, uh, which was jungle themed. Jungle okay, themed. So they like went an actual all out. tiger, an actual tiger, along with a lemur, two macaws, and a fennec fox, um, and they. Face some backlash for this because people are like, I can think of nothing worse than subjecting a tiger to teenagers dancing and Kygo blasting in their mm-hmm. ear for two hours. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. So like the issue, like this is, I would consider this, you know, animal cruelty. Right. Also, just like potentially dangerous. Like, yeah, you're taking a <laughs> wild animal and putting it near kids, like yeah. near teenagers. Like, what, what, what if he gets loose? Yeah. yeah. That has to be like a huge insurance thing. Also, maybe insurance doesn't even cover it. The number of adults that 
had to be like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Just, Let me go yeah. to the next adult that has to approve this and ar- and argue about why this is a great idea. Right. But they have recognized that this is a bad idea and they won't do it again. So yes. Catholic schools, take note. No live animals at your prom, maybe. <laughs> All right. What's next, Zach? So the Vatican is starting to adjust to the reality that a lot of religious communities are dwindling. A lot of members are dying off um, and not being replaced by new ones. And so this week they issued a document um, outlining new rules for monastic women's religious communities. So um, so nuns. A couple the weeks actual ago, nuns. Actual nuns. We <laughs> talked about the difference between religious sisters and nuns. Nuns are the ones that are uh, sort of set apart from the world, praying for the church and doing a much more contemplative vocation. Um, so the Vatican issued a document outlining new rules for these communities. Uh, there's a, a lot of different rules, but some of the main highlights are that they have to have at least eight professed religious sisters. And if that number drops below five, then they lose the right to elect a religious superior. Um which means and, and, that it, it means they lose some of their autonomy, right? So, right. like things like their what are they going to do with their land? Uh, how do they? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to retire to? Um, how do they make use of the earthly goods that they have? Um, the person who does makes those decisions is going to be chosen by the Vatican. Uh, and I brought this story because you might think, who cares? I mean, like. Does this really affecting this audience? Ooh, a Vatican document. <laughs> I know, but these are you know members of our church, and these are this these properties are our church's property, like whether they are administered by the nuns or the Vatican. Um, and also, these women have done a lot for the church and for us, whether you know it or not. I mean, they're praying for so many people every day, and so it's important for, as young Catholics stepping into our own faith to understand what types of decisions are being made. Um, with their properties and with these different things. Yeah. So, and like we, we bring a lot of stories about, you know, like nuns playing sports or joining rock bands, mm-hmm. but they're also, the, and those are fun and great, um, but they, you know, they're, are, they are also facing very significant challenges that we should also be paying attention exactly. to. Exactly. Right. What's our next story, Olga? So Father Augustus Tolton, who is the first African-American priest in the United States, is actually on his way to becoming the first African-American saint. Wow. That's exciting. So what's his background? So his background is he was a former slave who ran away and became a priest. So, um, yeah, so this is really exciting. So the cause for his canonization was officially launched in 2010. Uh, So the next step for canonization is going to happen next year in February of 2019. Uh, But it was recently just approved by the Vatican. So this is some really good news. So he's on his way to sainthood. It's a long process. And Mm -hmm. I, I... like the story because it just like was a very his history is very interesting he mm-hmm. he was this runaway slave and then um was taken in by this priest who like um helped him get an education but then he, when he wanted to become a priest he had to go to rome because, because no mm-hmm. seminaries in the united states would accept african-americans at that right. time so he went to rome became a priest came back and got like a triumphant welcome in his um in his hometown uh and uh white people and black people like came to his mass mm-hmm. and it's just like an amazing story. Yeah. So. And he is perfect for sainthood. So, yes. so we're looking God forward speed, to Godspeed, Father yep. Tolton. So what's next, Ashley? So this week is uh, National Mental Health Awareness Week. Um, so I thought we could talk about this recent document. Uh, it was released on May 1st by the bishops in California um, about uh, the broken mental health care system in this country. It's called Hope and Healing. And in it, the bishops call attention to the fact that 
you know, they we say a broken mental health care system, but there really isn't a system to speak of. Um, people who have mental illness often have trouble finding help. They often end up in jail or living on the street. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we used to have mental institutions, uh, but those were, you know, uh, broken down in the 1970s and nothing has really taken their place. Um, so I was really heartened by the Catholic Church drawing attention to the issue. And on the question of whether or not, you know, what, what the church can do better, uh, I actually want to bring in a different uh, story from the sports world. I was really inspired by Cleveland Cavaliers forward uh, Kevin Love uh, opened up this season about his own experiences with having panic attacks uh, and struggling with depression um, it, it, while being an NBA player. And it got me thinking about, you know, like this is sort of a, a moment where masculine identity is it's becoming more okay to be to open up about these things and talk about these things and it made me think about similarly like male dominated spaces such as seminaries are we equipping seminarians uh with the the tools to be able to talk about these things their own mental health issues and are the, are we giving them the right uh training to be able to point their parishioners to resources when they come to them yeah cuz there there are limits to what the you know what priests and people who work for the church can do like you can't you can't pray away depression you can accompany people who are struggling with mental Mm -hmm. illness um but at some point the church's role as church ends and they need to be able to point people to other resources but right now those resources don't really exist but the church also you know is one of the biggest like healthcare providers in this country like something like 10 percent of hospitals in the u.s are catholic so there are ways i've feel like the church could mm-hmm. could step in and yeah and i think that's one of the most encouraging things about this letter because for one i don't think i've ever seen this kind of pastoral letter on mental health from the u.s bishops before so one that's really encouraging to see them spotlighting this you know and to see that they're like you know we are all children of God and we have to listen to each other. And that's one of the things that's really, really encouraging. The fact that they are saying, you know, since like the 1990s, the suicide rates have increased. And they're just like, you know, as children of God, we have to listen to each other with compassion. Yeah. And this is something. So I uh, recently uh, reported a story for America about how the church is uh, ministering to people uh, who have lost loved ones to suicide. Um, And despite church teaching, you know, becoming more merciful and not, you know, saying these people are condemned to hell. There's still a good deal of stigma um, around the issue. It's hard to talk about. So the fact that the bishops openly address this in the letter, I think it's very encouraging. Yeah, and I think, Ashley, I think that article you did is really important work. And so I'm just going to point all our listeners to it if they haven't read it yet to check it out. Okay, We'll put it in the show notes. What's next, Olga? So a documentary called Pope Francis, A Man of His Word recently premiered at Cannes Film Festival, directed by Wim Wenders. And it's pretty exciting. This is major. This is the first time that a pope has granted a director who is not Catholic this kind of access into his papacy. Yeah. And it's it sounds like it's going to be a pretty it's done over a long period of time, mm-hmm. right? Like they yeah, met multiple he had four times. Four interviews over four years. Right. And, you know, I'm going to start this discussion mm-hmm. with. We haven't seen it yet, yeah. right. which is what everyone wants right. to... Because it, it premieres nationwide May 18th, this Friday, so when you guys hear yeah. this recording. So I I plan on seeing it. Yes, I all, do as well, but we haven't going to see it. But I would like to just raise some questions. Right. Uh, is this a good thing to have such up-close personal access, sort of like superstar access, right. uh, to the Pope? Honestly, I think so, because 
one thing that I forget, because we're very privileged, we work in Catholic media, so we see everything that Pope Francis is doing, what he writes, the things he met, all the bold statements that he makes. So it seems like everyone is plugged into this, but I don't think everyone has the kind of access that we do to him. So I think this kind of documentary will really open up new things, new perspectives into Pope Francis that secular audiences might not be familiar with. I think that's true and right. Um, I can see kind of a concern about... um Drawing so much attention to the Pope, the papacy, um, kind of making it, making him a celebrity. Like, this is a Pope that, um, you know, has told, has, he wants a church that's a field hospital and people going to the margins. And this, something like this kind of draws all eyes to Rome and to the man, Pope Francis, instead of, you know, going out into the world. Um, And people, people often think papal infallibility means everything the Pope says is like dogma Mm -hmm. um which is not true but like when you do when he you know he's i don't know what he says in this documentary but he's gonna say things and it will be picked apart um and taken as like you know people are like oh like what pope francis says in this is now church teaching which is not necessarily true um so just like there's some inherent risk in that and and giving that kind of access um so all these things said Olga's still right, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, it's an interesting question to, to raise, but at the end of the day, people are drawn to Pope Francis for good reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like they want to be invited into sort of his presence because he, yeah. he kind of like radiates holiness and yeah. holiness right. is attractive mm-hmm. and you want to like be invited into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I assume, you know, He's going to be pointing outward. He's not going to be exactly. talking about right, himself. Right. He's like, well, actually, I'm wearing I'm wearing Prada. <laughs> right. Thank you. Uh, and also, this is a tool of evangelization. When you have the Pope and mm-hmm. Pope Francis out mm-hmm. with, you know, a documentary by Wim Wenders. I mean, mm-hmm. this is huge. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is going to reach beyond the church um, all over the world. So this isn't like the pastor's uncle who has a video camera <laughs> and so was invited to, like, shoot some B-roll at May Crowning. This is right, legit. Right documentary filmmaking yeah so we're sure that this documentary is going to draw attention and focus in on how pope francis uh is going to the margins and using his platform to spotlight places where uh there's conflict and violence and uh where he's passionate about uh achieving peace uh and one of those places that he's used his platform to advocate for this week is the holy land yeah so it's been a very uh terrible week uh, in the Holy Land. On Monday, Israeli soldiers shot and killed over 60 Palestinians who were uh, protesting at the border between Israel and the Gaza Strip. Um, Over 2,000 Palestinians were injured. Um, And this was, uh, the protest was scheduled for the 70th anniversary of the founding of Israel, um, which the Palestinian community uh, calls Nakba, which means uh, catastrophe in Arabic. Um, So they were doing this protest to draw attention to the um, terrible prison-like conditions uh, that exist in Gaza today. Um, And tragically, a lot of people were killed. You know, we were all watching this. People posted on our Facebook group that they were sort of, their hearts were breaking sort of watching this. And Pope Francis also issued a statement uh, expressing uh, his concern and sorrow over the deterioration of peace in the Middle East. Yes, and he had some really, really powerful words. He said that it is not the use of violence that leads to peace. War calls on war. Violence calls on violence. And he called on all the sides involved and the international community to renew the commitment so that dialogue, justice and peace may prevail. And the Pope read the statement as Wednesday audience, and he encouraged uh, 
all the people in attendance and all Catholics to pray to Mary, the Queen of Peace, uh, for the intentions of achieving peace in this area, in this region. Um, and so he's inviting all of us to do that. Uh, and he also concluded a statement by ex- extending his uh, cordial good wishes to Muslims worldwide uh, for the month of Ramadan, which begins May 17th this week. Okay. So we will be praying to Mary for peace in the Middle East. Joining us on Skype today is Ross Douthat, an op-ed columnist at the New York Times, where he writes about religion, politics, and culture. And he is also author of To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism. Welcome to Jesuitical, Ross. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're we're very excited. Uh, so first question, uh, you seem to be worried about some aspects of Pope Francis's papacy. So can you get into what some of those are? Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> just going to just, just I mean, jumping I, I, into it. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm I'm afraid my concerns are sort of, uh, you know, almost boringly conventional in a sense. But but I am pretty skeptical of essentially what I see as Pope Francis's strategy for a kind of partial liberalization of church teaching around the vexed, fraught issues um, that start with divorce and remarriage and communion, but sort of radiate outward from there uh, to encompass a lot of different sort of culture war issues in the West. Um, And I think this sort of tension that Francis is trying to defuse is actually an important tension uh, that, you know, that the Western world is kind of a mess on matters related to sex and marriage, and that sort of trying to bring the church into a kind of more relaxed alignment with that mess isn't a great idea. Does it all sort of, so this is the issue of uh, communion for people who have divorced and remarried without getting an annulment. Does this really all stem back to one footnote in Amoris Laetitia? Or is there a broader issue? I mean, I think the footnote is a kind of distillation of the much, the larger debate that the Pope um, encouraged and also tried, I think, to stage manage in various ways across the course of the two synods on the family. So it's not that sort of the footnote is kind of incidental. It's that the Pope had a sort of definite place that he wanted the bishops to go. He knew he and, was going to sneak it in the, in, in the, in the footnote. Oh, the I don't, I, I don't <laughs> think he knew. I don't think, I think that what the synods delivered was sort of, it sort of brought home to him in effect that, you know, these were actually quite divisive issues and that more conservative Catholics, um, I guess, you know, myself included, but also, but including people much more theologically and ecclesiastically competent, <laughs> the newspaper columnists, um, were resistant to the kind of explicit change that, you know, most famously Cardinal Walter Casper of Germany had proposed. And so it was necessary to, if you wanted to make some kind of change, to find another way. And so the footnote amounts to a kind of de facto permission slip for change that doesn't rise to the level of a, the kind of explicit teaching that would have sort of sharpened um, the kind of tensions that were already on display in so, the sentence. So we all, we work in media, so we pay attention to these documents, to the footnotes of these documents. Um, God so help I, us. Yep. Yeah. I know. <laughs> um, but, you know, most Catholics don't 
really. Um, Do you think, like, do you think this concerns your average person in the pew? I think you've said before that, like, most people are surprised when, you, you know, you come out as like a critic of a pope because he's just so popular. Like he is, he is quite popular. Like, do you, people so, like people like the pope, and yeah. promoting a book that's critical of the pope <laughs> has made that even clearer to me than, mm-hmm. than it was. And it not was. just you know so-called liberal Catholics. Like he's pretty popular across the board. Right. No, absolutely. And I think there's no question that this is an elite battle. Basically, it's it's a battle. Um, that's sort of be, been fought at the highest levels of the hierarchy. It's a battle between theologians, and then it's also a battle between journalists, pundits, Catholics on Twitter, and so on. And you, it, it you doesn't. Used, you used the word battle, and like you've said civil war before. Do you really think it's that serious <laughs> and dire? <laughs> I mean, well, dire. I, I know. I you hope that it isn't actually dire, but yes, I think I think it's quite serious. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't have written my probably slightly too alarmist book if I didn't think it was serious. Uh, you know, I, I think people who are sort of on the other side, so to speak, people who would argue with me and say that I'm wrong in various ways also think it's quite serious. I mean, I, I think that, you know, you can see in the kind of Team Francis boosters in Catholic media and also within the hierarchy, this sense of sort of, well, this is, you know, this is a moment where dramatic reform, potentially revolutionary change is possible and where, you know, there's been a kind of obvious stalemate in the church over the last two generations between competing interpretations of the Second Vatican Council and a kind of stalemate on, you know, how much the church can in fact change. You know, you can say, well, it's just a narrow question of, you know, the sort of technicalities of canon law around communion for the divorced and remarried. But I think it's it's perfectly obvious if you look at the people who are sort of most invested in these changes, there's a clear sense that this is sort of an opening to go much further, that the, you know, the step after communion for the remarried is intercommunion with Protestants, that the step after that is blessings for same-sex couples and so on. Ross, can we could we just back up for a second? I, I realized we did we haven't actually like spelled out what what's so bad about people who have, you know, been divorced, gotten remarried, gone through this period of penance or maybe consulted with an internal forum, was what it's called, mm-hmm. I guess, with their pastor. Uh what's the what's the problem with them receiving communion? Which is what the footnote alludes to. Right. I mean the the problem with them receiving communion is that it basically empties out a, I think, you know, already somewhat diminished Catholic teaching on the indissolubility of marriage, um, which, you know, I mean, goes back to the words of Jesus himself, et cetera, in the New Testament, which Catholicism has taken a more sort of stringent view of than just about any other Orthodox or Protestant church over the last hundreds and thousands of years. And this is sort of a, it's a case where basically Catholicism is the only remaining branch of Christianity um, that I think still takes indissolubility seriously. Um, And, you know, if you look at sort of how the annulment process has developed in the United States, it sort of pushed that teaching to what I think is its limit, basically, where you can say, all right, we're going to expand the criteria for saying that a marriage wasn't a real marriage in order to be merciful and accommodating and realistic about sort of the nature of modern life. And that, that's sort of what what the annulment process has done. And the the step where 
you just have sort of a process of penance or, you know, you sort of consult with your confessor and, and so on and then return to communion is a step beyond that. And it's basically sort of stripping away any sense that the marriage itself is something that the church is going to defend and take seriously. And it's very tough for me to see how that is distinguishable from, you know, the the basic sort of secular <laughs> divorce culture mm-hmm. in the Western world, except that it includes a little bit more focus on penance, but also arguably you know, there are ways in which even the expedited annulment process that the Pope has proposed makes an annulment easier to get in certain cases than the secular divorce. One of the things that I worry about a lot is as a young person practicing their faith, um, are young people going to like stay with Catholicism? You mentioned that we're one of the only religions left with this hard of a hard line. Um, but I can't I don't actually think that young people this is going to be what draws them into religion or Catholicism in general, that Catholicism is the last hard line in the sand is going to be the thing that gets people to come back to the faith. I mean, I, I don't I don't see the hard line per se as, you know, a brilliant evangelization strategy. Exactly. But on the other hand, nor do I see a kind of soft line, you know, of the kind you have in most other <laughs> most other Christian denominations at this point as much in, of an evangelization strategy Either. I mean, I, I think you in certain the evangelization question is really interesting and it's a place where, you know, you can there are there's a longstanding liberal conservative dispute about what actually brings right. people to church and keeps what, them what, there. What what brought you to the church? Yeah, because you converted from sort of a high Protestant <laughs> thing, right? I was, I was a I was a teenager and my mother was converting and I was very happy to join a church where you memorized prayers and nobody put their hands on you and said, testify to how Jesus changed your life. Um, you know, I mean, that's that's the that's the flippant answer. The more serious answer is that, you know, I read the sort of things that a conservative leaning convert would read G.K. Chesterton and that kind of thing. And I was sort of convinced by the church's claims to be the actual church that Jesus founded. And in that sense, for me, the issues, the issue of uh, in the indissolubility of marriage was actually important in the same way that like the issue of transubstantiation was important because they seemed like cases where the church actually had a better claim than supposedly sort of biblically based Protestant churches to be actually holding on to the weird, hard Jesus says something and everybody freaks out and goes away <laughs> parts of the New mm-hmm. Testament. But I would also recognize that that, you know, that experience is idiosyncratic. Sure. But it is your experience and that's valid. Well, I mean, but I'd also dispute the like the hard line issue a little bit, right? So yeah, it's it is a hard line in a sense. And you know, you can contrast it with the idea of the church being merciful and, and so on, as obviously the Pope himself and many people who are supportive of him have done. At the same time, like, you know, I'm a child of divorce. I live in a culture where I'm surrounded by friends who grew up with divorced parents. Um, you know, I'm in my late 30s and married now and sort of surrounded by people who are also married or, you know, have kids and have their own struggles in that dynamic. And the the hard line is also, it's, in a sense, it's a form of respect and sort of kindness and, you know, a teaching that takes seriously the position of children, their relationship to their parents, their confidence in their parents' marriage. It's a source of sort of support and strength for people sort of struggling in their marriages, but mm-hmm. want to retain their marriages. I, I just think there is a there is a sense in which obviously 
sort of the more relaxed teaching is the more merciful teaching for a certain segment of people. But there are a lot of different people with complicated relationships to divorce, remarriage, their own marriages, their right. parents, and so on. And it's not clear to me that, you know, the mercy you extend to one person or one couple doesn't read or translate as mercy to people in a different kind of situation. I mean, this is the hard logic of mercy. I mean, I guess, because I one of the things I struggle with, I'm also a child of divorce and like really have struggled to like wrap my own head around how my faith works in that regard. And, you know, I I think about people like um, who who I want to evangelize to, who maybe have already gone through this whole process of, you know, getting married, getting divorced, getting remarried again, having, you know, a separate set of kids living together and saying like, look, you should like come into the, the fold. You should become Catholic, but you will never be fully Catholic because of this. And I, I, I just don't know how to like that breaks my heart a lot. Like, and I think about well, how but much. I, but I guess that that's a case where, you know, where I, I mean, I'll play, you know, the, the relative liberal <laughs> for a minute and say that in the U.S., most people who have a previous marriage that they, you know, and a second marriage. Yeah, I mean, obviously it varies from case to case, but the church's annulment system in the Western world and especially in the U.S. covers a lot of the kind of cases. Like, I mean, when I think yeah. of my own friends who are not Catholic or Christian or religious who, you know, I have a friend who was married for two years in her 20s and divorced and then married again and now has kids and so on. And, you know, when I wrote my book, she sometimes will snipe at me like, oh, you know, you don't think my second marriage is real. And my response tends to be, well, under the church's, you know, under the church's annulment rules, probably your first marriage would be annulled. And, you, and that, I that mean, isn't but doesn't true that, of anyone. Doesn't that, that in itself threaten the institution of marriage that like you you can so easily say, oh, it wasn't yes. real? <laughs> well, this right. No, this is this is the I think this is the the obviously challenging position that the church is in no matter which approach it takes right that mm -hmm. there are costs to every approach and there are you know i have more traditionalist friends who would say the entire annulment process is a joke you know and you need to you know you need the church shouldn't be granting annulments at this pace mm -hmm. um and you know it should it should take a harder line i guess overarchingly though when i have these kind of arguments like i think there's an underlying sense that a lot of people have that God couldn't possibly ask you for something as hard as, you know, either leaving your second or third marriage or whatever, or being part of a church where you can't take communion or feel like you shouldn't take communion for years or even decades. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's I think that's a on the one hand, a totally understandable perspective. On the other hand, like, you know, we know from the everyday of human life <laughs> that God asks terribly difficult things of people that don't have anything to do per se with communion and their relationship to the church and so on. I mean, human life is, a, in no matter, you know, for secular people as well as religious people, it's obviously a period of trial and purgation and difficulty no matter how you approach things. God asked Mother Teresa to spend her whole life as this sort of public face of Christianity while enduring what later turned out was sort of decades-long dark nights of the soul, right? I mean, I'm I'm just skeptical of the idea that, well, God couldn't possibly be asking people something that seems this hard, because in the everyday and, you know, in the life of the church, God clearly asks 
a, such a wide range of incredibly difficult things. So, so Ross, you sound a little bit sort of pessimistic about the church, but is this how you actually feel when you're at Mass every Sunday? No, I mean, I think it would be a huge mistake to carry <laughs> your view of ecclesiastical politics into into Mass. Um, no, I mean, I well, and also I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. So most of my mastering experience, I'm not thinking about high-level theological debates or, you know, sort of, you know, the the prayerful posture I'm supposed to right. take to the to the sacraments. Um, but no, I mean, I think what gives you, you know, hope from, <laughs> for the future well, I mean, of the church to be, you know, I, I I I guess my view is that the it's a combined view, right? Like as Christians and as Catholic Christians, you're supposed to have a well-founded cosmic optimism at, at all times. Um, but precisely because you're supposed to have that, you also need to be realistic about the state of the church, um, w- especially when you know, you're fortunate or unfortunate enough to have a vocation where you have to write about it or argue about it or talk about it on podcasts and so on. And I think there's, there's a sense in which, you know, I'm, I think people would be surprised, maybe they wouldn't be surprised by how, you know, fundamentally, fundamentally, I, I am optimistic. I have sort of an optimistic temperament, even though I express a lot of pessimism and not only about Catholicism in my mm-hmm. public writings. But I think those things go together. I think the the ultimate optimism should allow you to be realistic. And I think there's, I mean, the truth is that whichever side of these debates you're on, you know, the West, if you're if you're a Christian in the West, this isn't true everywhere, but if you're a Christian in the West, you're living in a rapidly secularizing culture in which, you know, your own church has, you know, good things have happened, obviously, in Catholicism over the last 50 years. But overall, in terms of practice, attendance, belief, all, all the sort of reasonable measures of where the church is, things have gotten worse. Um, and you don't want to live in a church where sort of the leaders of the church are constantly congratulating themselves on how it's a move of the spirit and it's a new Pentecost and so on, even as actual practice goes down and down and down. So I, yeah, I think, I think you can, you can combine eschatological optimism with a, with realism about sort of the overall state of things. Mm-hmm. We have just two more questions left. Uh, but the first one is, with three young kids at mass, are you uh, pro Cheerios in Ziploc baggies <laughs> or anti? And also cry rooms. How do you feel about cry rooms? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm against cry rooms. Okay. I think okay. Uh, they Some common ground. It's, it's a strange. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, with 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 those kind of rooms, there's always this weird mix when you like if you're visiting a parish that you don't attend regularly, and they have the glassed-in room in the back. At first, you're like, oh, this is great. But then you realize that, you know, one, you're sort of walled off from the rest of the congregation in a weird way. And two, at least my kids behave much worse when they're sort of <laughs> yeah. separated because they're aware of what's, you know, they're not. Yeah, idiots. that's Gaiji's rig. Like, yeah, we're in the kids room. <laughs> so we're going to act more like kids. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm against that. The Cheerios, we, we do. We don't do Cheerios these days, but we did them a ton uh, we did goldfish, which are even worse. Mm, yeah. Uh, with our yeah, when our those first... get stepped on, it's just they like get a disaster. <laughs> I think it's just very kid. You know, our our littlest kid now is better behaved than our first kid was at at his age. And the truth is that you know, parents, you just do what you got to do. It's survival. That's yeah. what you're fighting. 
survival there. And I'm like constantly around. edified every time I see a parent with mm-hmm. a young child at mass. Yeah. And I don't, I can like barely get my own self there and I can't <laughs> yeah. imagine what it takes. It's, so it's, it's, you know, it's a constant struggle. It's basically sainthood, like yeah. right yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in absolutely. the minivan driving fast. Santo Subito. That's yeah. You know. Well, that gives us a great transition to our last question, uh, which we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, it could be yourself for taking your kids to mass. It's not it's definitely not myself. And you can't canonize the living. Um, because well, you never the, know. Show, what, what, are, what are they going to do? What are they going to do tomorrow? Yeah, it, it could come back to bite you. I'll, I canonize Benedict, and he, you know, launches a Swiss Guard-led coup against Francis. <laughs> right, that's have true. Okay, back. so you or would be I against that? <laughs> maybe I say that's awesome. No, I know. I mean, I see mind. Um, yeah, that. No, that's 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 a very good question, which I'm I'm hesitant about. I mean, you know, there's. There's a sense in which I think there are, you know, like I mentioned Chesterton earlier, right? And there's sort of a, there's a, a cluster of, you know, sort of journalistic Catholics, I think, who would probably love to have St. Gilbert as the patron saint of Catholic journalism, which in a sense he is basically like, you know, that's the amount of prose that he produced was incredible. So on, so that's, in a sense, that's my answer, but I'm just going to add a doubt about it, which is that it's good in a way for ordinary Catholics, and I'm a very, very ordinary one, to have people who are your heroes without sort of having the kind of, you know, once people are canonized, it's like they, you know, they, they enter, they enter a different realm in your imagination. Mm -hmm. The, the Flannery O'Connor quote, don't make me a saint because then people won't take me seriously. There's right. And there's, you know, you don't want to go too far with that, right? Because the saints are great. But there's there is there is a little bit of truth to that. Like the, somebody mm-hmm. said, you know, we canonize we canonize the people we, we aren't necessarily going to listen to anymore. Um, mm, and sometimes yeah. that's not true. But but sometimes it is. So I'd pick G.K. Chesterton, but I'd also there would be part of me that if he was raised to the altars, I would I would mm. feel that something had been lost as well. All OK, right. so. Uh, I didn't know his name was Gilbert. Yep. I yeah, I've only learned something new. So Saint Chesterton in this hypothetical low stakes game. <laughs> pray for pray us, for us. <laughs> Ross. So the book is to change a church. Um, pe- where can people find that? Everywhere, I'm guessing. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, I guess I'd like Barnes and Noble to stay in business. Mm-hmm. So I, I would, I would encourage. If you aren't patronizing your local independent bookstore and demanding that they they order it, um, then Barnes and Noble over Amazon. But you know, do what you have to do. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining Thanks us. So much, thank you, Absolutely. Thank you, guys. for some listener feedback first some new patrons um patreons patrons what are we saying patrons patrons uh we got super fan james Tilwill. sorry if i ruined your name james uh and ambassadors linda kiera alex reinhardt and phil giggy senior thank you so much for thanks for keeping the lights us. on mm-hmm. yeah. yeah very exciting and we have some 
other exciting news. Very. I feel like every week we have something new for our listeners. So this week we are announcing Jesuitical merch. We're super excited to be able to promote our Jesuitical shirt. Um, It's in our Jesuitical blue with our really cool logo. It's so cool. Angelo designed it Mm -hmm. and it's amazing. Angelo the Engineer is also uh, a very talented designer. Yeah. And he he's made the one these... who did our logo. Uh-huh. Yes. And he made these shirts and it has Pope Francis on it. Mm-hmm. So even if like you don't want to just like have a shirt that says Jesuitical, obviously you want a shirt with Pope Francis of on course, it. Of course. Of <laughs> course. So if you support Jesuitical at the $10 level at patreon.com, the ambassador level, you get one of these shirts automatically. Yeah. So these are coming your way, which is right. really exciting. Mm-hmm. You probably, I reached out to you, gotten your shipping address in the yeah. past couple of weeks. But it's not too late. You can still give $10 a month at Patreon and get a t-shirt, or you can go to jesuitswag.com slash jesuitical, um, and there, listeners can get 10% off by using the promo code jesuitical, and this offer is good until May 25th. Yes. Go to jesuitswag.com slash jesuitical. And also, Jesuitical merch is not like other merch. It's special because it's made in partnership with uh, Jesuit Swag and Homeboy Industries. So each shirt is hand-printed by formerly gang-involved individuals in Los Angeles. And each all the shirts that are sold helps them move forward. So this is Father Greg Boyle's uh, ministry that he's founded in Los Angeles. And so we're really excited to be able yeah, to partner with them. Yeah, that's such a great partnership. Yeah. So please go get a t-shirt. They're awesome. Um, and then you will just be a walking billboard for Jesuitical and Pope Francis and Homeboy. So all good things. Amen. So let's get into that last part of our show. Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? So this week I have a consolation. In the past few episodes, I've been talking about there are certain uh, projects or things I'm doing that work that really fill me with a lot of despair and uh you don't drain like me analytics. <laughs> I mean, they just like drain me of confidence because I feel like I can't do it or whatever. Um, but, you know, w- doing the examine and talking with um, our spiritual formator, Father Eric Sundrup, I'm like starting to notice the things that bring me into desolation. And so this past week, there was another experience of that where I was in desolation, but I like, I knew it in the moment. I was like, no, th- the things, the voices that I'm hearing aren't true. They're, uh, they're not real. Um, and I sort of brought that into the light and I and I mentioned it to Father Eric. I was like, look, uh, this thing's happening to me right now. And the feeling that comes out of bringing your desolation into the light and sharing it with another person uh, is freedom. I mean, it doesn't have power over you anymore. All of a sudden, you know, the, the realities don't change. You still got these things to do, but there's a consolation in knowing that, you know, God's peace fills you with freedom, right? Like these things exist, but it's not who what defines you. And so that is my consolation this week. That's great. What do you got, Ashley? Uh, I actually have a desolation this week. Um, So I saw my very good friend, Ilona. Uh, She lives in Brussels and she was visiting this weekend. Um, And I always like kind of credit her with like the reason I'm still Catholic is because I was randomly assigned to be her roommate uh, my first year of college because we would go to mass together. And that's when I really came into my own faith. Um, But now she's living in Europe um, and is really struggling to find a Catholic community. Like she talked about um, going to mass on Easter and then calling all the kids up and there were two kids and it's just like she has not it's like become very hard for her to like go get herself to mass because every time she goes she's just like depressed because there's no one there um and so it's it you know i don't live in europe but for me it's hard to see god operating in europe right now and it's hard for me to see god 
operating in her life when she's struggling so much and there's like I don't feel like there's anything I can really do to help like I jokingly said like listen to Jesuitical and we can be your community but that's not enough like you you want you want a church community a parish community that can really um meet your spiritual needs and she doesn't have that so it's it's hard to it's hard to watch that as as a friend um so yeah what about you Olga um, I've got a consolation this week. So for the past, I want to say few weeks or maybe even a few months, communication has been really difficult in my family, um, especially in my relationship with my sister. She's she's really busy and she's like in a relationship and she's a teacher. So she's always swamped with what she does for work. Um, and when I first realized this, I was like, you know, I'm really angry and I'm really bitter about this. And the people in my life are just kind of like, you know, you have to pray about it. And I'm always like very, I always wanted to say like, no, 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 I'm not going to pray about this. I'm going to be angry and I'm going to curse at my family and yell at them. But I was like, no, that's, you don't do that with the people you love. So then I prayed about it. You're and not supposed to. You're not supposed <laughs> to. Um, but then I prayed about it and I'm, I'm at the point a few weeks later, cause it did not happen overnight. Um, I'm at the point where I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm much better about, like, I feel much better about this. And I was able to like sit with my parents and my sister and we had like a family meeting and we talked about things and it was like two hours long. Um, and the consolation in that was just being able to see that God was present in those like very ugly moments where I wanted to resort to the cursing and I wanted to resort to the being bitter and stubborn. Um, and seeing that he kind of like led me to the point where I'm like, no, no, no. These are the people you love, and when they're the people you love, God helps you through it. Um, so that's been my consolation for this week. That's great. I'm glad glad Thank you guys you. were able to work through that. Thank you. All right. Get us out of here, Ashley. All righty. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Courtney Callanan. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering and design by Angelou Jesus Conta. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Jesuitical. Slash groups slash Jesuitical. Ah, thank you. And please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to JLB2018, Jess81311, Computer Science Noob, <laughs> and Jessica Patch. Finally, send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americanmedia.org. This show was made possible by the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. To apply, visit jesuitvolunteers.org slash apply. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.